0: with the story of Jesus, and he is writing in this particular angle so as to, so as to show to them as Gentiles that Jesus is not just the, the Jewish Messiah, but he is the Lord. He is the world saviour. He is the, the whole universe's king. He is, the, he is the priest, prophet, and king of all people. He's the God above every God. And with this angle, he actually, if you look at Mark chapter 1, the very first verse in the first chapter of Mark 1, he starts out right in the, in the beginning of his gospel, he starts with a quotation from Isaiah and he actually phrases it in such a way, he, he frames his whole explanation of Jesus' life as a reflection of what Isaiah had spoken. So in verse 1 he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now our English versions put a full stop new sentence. As it was written in, the, in Isaiah the prophet, and so he goes, well, I want us to remove that punctuation which was not there in the original Greek. The, interpreters weren't, the translators aren't doing anything dishonest. That's just how they've translated it. Instead, read it like this as he's introducing his whole book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. His story of the gospel of Jesus is going to be a fulfillment as it is written of in Isaiah's prophecy. And so he starts out, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. Mark starts out from the very beginning saying, I'm going to tell you the story of Isaiah's Messiah. I'm going to tell you the story that fulfills what Isaiah had written about, when he penned his version of the gospel 700 years ago. And today we find ourselves in Mark 15, uh, between verses 16 to 32, where where Mark is detailing for us the the story of Jesus being, being bloodied and beaten and crucified as it reflects Isaiah 52 and 53, that very famous, what we call the suffering servant song. In Isaiah... There's a few sections that give us these servant songs. And, and, and in the prophetic literature, what this is, is, this is the prophet being told of a certain, specific, significant servant of God, a future prophet, a future king, a servant that would come from God and save Israel from their sins. Now, what was also cloaked in all of that was the promise that he would save Israel and the world from their sins. That's a good news for all of you non-Jews like me in the house this morning. Jesus was this this prophesied servant that was coming and the prophets were given these, these poetic songs to write about him in prophecy, but some of them looked as if they were speaking about two separate servants. In fact, logically, they had to. The Jews had believed that there would be a, a suffering servant who would come and, and die for the people and suffer for the people. And then there was another righteous servant that would come and he would be exalted and he would be uplifted and he would be the conqueror. But obviously, these, these people can't be the same person. There's two coming suffering, there's two coming servants of the Lord. There's there's two messiahs, there's two Christs who would fulfill all of these prophecies. This was a mystery to the Jews, even to the, the prophets. They didn't know exactly what they were prophesying. Look at First Peter chapter 1. We will get to Mark 15. We're just, we're warming up. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter <coughs> says in verse 11, sorry, we'll start in verse 10, he's speaking about the gospel and says, now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace of God that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The prophets who were speaking, in other words, and writing down the prophecies that God gave them, they themselves were then going and doing book studies to try and understand what in the world they have just prophesied. And there was particularly one thing, one, one, one spanner in the works that would throw off all of their study The one thing that they were particularly focused on, verse 11 here tells us, is that they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories were the confusing married accounts for the prophets. So in Isaiah 52 and 53, we get both starting out in Isaiah. Go there, go there. Isaiah 52. I'm not going to talk about it. I want you to see it. And then we'll go to Mark 15. In Isaiah 52, the end of 52, from about verse 13 onwards, we have, as an introduction to the prophecy about the Messiah's suffering, He introduces it with a prophecy about the Messiah's exaltation. Verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shall, shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now you think there it's all about glory. You think that it's all about he's beyond the humans of the the form of man. He's just got this majesty that, that as verse fourteen there says, his appearance was, was beyond human semblance. But it doesn't just say that. It's right after he said, he'll be so exalted, it says, and his appearance shall be so marred beyond human semblance. In the very same breath, Isaiah is prophesying the high and exalted servant who will not even look human. He will be so, so, so brutally beaten up. He won't even look like a human being. He'll be unrecognizable to the people who know him because his face, his body will be so, so destroyed and ripped. How in the world can this be the one person? This is the wondrous mystery that we sing about. this is the this is the glorious mystery that you can behold for all of your life and never fully comprehend. This is the glorious mystery that we will be singing about for eternity in heaven if you have placed your faith in Christ and we will never get sick of it. this is the mystery that that blew John's mind when in the vision of revelation he he's he, he's told that that there's a lion that has conquered and as he turns to look at the conquering lion it's a butchered lamb this is jesus the suffering resurrected exalted and reigning king of all the universe who beckons you to believe in him trust in him and obey him that is the gospel so let's go now to mark chapter 15 as we look at mark's account We can start in in verse 15, the last verse that we read last week. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. May God bless the reading of his own inspired authoritative word in our midst this morning. We're going to see, as we take cues from Isaiah 53, we're going to see multiple uh, 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 prophecies of Isaiah 53 fulfilled through this humiliation, suffering, suffering and destruction of the body of Jesus as foretold by Isaiah. First of all, we will see the fulfillment of the prophecy that he, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind from Isaiah 52, verse 14. This was fulfilled at least in part and mostly through verse 15 of chapter 15, that Pilate sent him away to be scourged and then delivered him over to be crucified. The act of scourging was was the most horrendous act. Often it was, it was a death penalty. In fact, we're told by, by uh, I believe it's John's account, that, that Pilate sends him away to be scourged so that he would be so horribly punished and bloodied and, 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 and filled with excruciating pain so that when he's brought out again and presented to the bloodthirsty crowd of Jews who want to kill him, they would be quelled enough. Their, their conscience would kick in. They would see the, the bloody man and say, it's enough. Let's go home. We've, we've had our fun. He's been punished. That was, that was Pilate's desire, that they would see that and settle down. So so horrible is the punishment of scourging. It's where, it's where their hands are, are bound fast to a, to a short cut-off post so that their back is, is exposed and whips and, and uh, bits of, of bone and hooks and chains and whatnot are just, are just flailed across the person's back and ribs and they're turned around and it's also occurred to their front. If they run out of, of canvas to paint, they go for the legs. It would, it would leave bones and often organs exposed. This was done to him as he's being spat on, mocked, humiliated, beaten up. He's already been struck and beaten by the Jews and by the cohort, and now it's happening again. He's being struck in the face in these most horrible of ways so that as he's released from this, hardly able to walk, you're you're losing bodily fluids out of every wound in your body at this point. He doesn't look human. If you can make out the, the four limbs, the head, it's a human being, he doesn't look alive. He is, a, he is a bloodied mess. He is, his body is broken, just as he had prophesied the night before. See, as he has the first communion with his, with his brothers, the, the disciples, and he breaks the body, says, This is my body broken for you. You can have no nourishment from it unless it is ground to pieces. So it is with the body of Jesus. He took on a body so that he could make the sacrifice. And here he is, being scourged, beaten, bloodied, brutalized beyond human semblance often this was done so that it would shorten the crucifixion time so that he would die quickly on the cross often it was a it was a death penalty in itself but what it what he has become in fulfillment of isaiah 52 14 is unrecognizable from the human jesus of nazareth now now what they're looking at is the lamb of god who is taking away the sins of the world but he doesn't look like the jesus they knew Secondly, we see from Isaiah 53 verse 2, Isaiah prophesies that he had no form or majesty about him that we should look at him. In other words, you would think as, as maybe uh, as we read Isaiah 52 verse 13, he's going to be exalted. He's going to be shining forth with brilliance, surely when God The infinite eternal being takes on a human form and comes into our world. At least we could give the Catholics this, right? At least he's going to be shining with brilliance. He's going to have one of those stupid effeminate little halos around his head. And he's going to be shining white. And he's just going to float above the ground. Surely that would be God in flesh. Surely. But it's not the case. It, just as Samuel was looking at all of the looking at all of the sons of Jesse and saying, This this isn't the son, this isn't the king. I'm, I'm looking with human eyes and I see I see strong men, I see men that I would make king of Israel. But God says, none of these men. It was David, who didn't look like a king. Well, so it was with, with Jesus, the, the descendant of David, the true king of the whole world. He, he was there among them, and nothing about him looked divine. He was just a carpenter's son. That's all he was, at least physically. And because he was so unimpressive, we see verse 16 through 20 occur. Look at your Bibles. Because he was so unimpressive, unmajestic, there was nothing about him that looked like he was the all-glorious God in human flesh, and so the soldiers had their fun and humiliated him. In fact, it was so ironic to them how unmajestic he was compared to what was being claimed about him, that he was king of the Jews, he was so unmajestic that they took the uh, the, the crown and put it on his head. They put the, the purple robe, one of which would have been one of the centurion's robes, and, and they put it on him, and they gave him a little stick that would be his staff, and they sat him down dripping with his own blood, and, and they fake-worshipped him. It was so funny that somebody so unmajestic, with no form, that they should look at him to worship him, that they ironically bent down and worshipped. This is a part of his humiliation. In in theology, we talk about the the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, the the two phases or stages of his his ministry. His humiliation uh, involved his uh, incarnation into human flesh, his living under the natural laws of our world that he created, his living under the law that was given to the Jews, his living in perfect obedience his suffering to the point of death and his, his submission into the grave. But his exaltation begins in the fact that his soul went to be with God after his death. His soul was reconnected to his body, which is now glorified in power. That's the resurrection. He taught, did miracles, and then ascended to the throne, whereby he reigns for all of eternity with a kingdom that shall have no end. That's the exaltation. But we're in the humiliation. And to drive home that this is not just a a technical word, humiliation, but to drive home the reality that our Lord was humiliated beyond imagination. We have accounts like this, that Jesus, the son of God, is being pretend worshiped. It's so ironic what the Romans do here. This is literally what they ought to be doing. If they could just remove the sarcasm, they ought to be worshiping him. And yet they are not. They are mocking him. There could have been upward of 600 soldiers here doing this at the moment. You can think about a a medium-sized high school, a a huge uh, school hall filled with people, that sort of size, 600 people, all mocking Jesus at this point, taking their turns at walking around him and and worshiping him and striking him on the head. We see in verses 17 to 18 here that they take the, the robe and put it on him and also they twist together a crown of thorns. That is, they... They grab a, uh, a, a, a branch, a thorny branch from the villa somewhere. One of them has a good idea. He chops it off with his sword. He twists it around into a circle, makes sure that it stays there. Uh, and these thorns would have been large, a few inches long. And they go over to Jesus and his already battered head and, and press it down from the top so that it was piercing flesh. He, he's, he's bleeding from that, but now he has a crown. And to them, that's hilarious because he's supposed to be a king. They also give him a reed, a, a, a staff, like a scepter that a king might have. And there they mock him. It's so ironic because he will receive glory. Like they're almost correct here. Do you see how God is God's using the, the enemies, using the mocking to actually weave into this narrative that he will have exaltation? He will be the king. They're almost correct. Hebrews 12, verse 2 gives us an idea into what Jesus is doing at this point. As he is being heaped with shame and humiliation, he is bearing it because he can tell, because he knows what God has promised him in the future. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was being humiliated with this false crown, false cloak, false scepter, false worship, and he could endure it because he knew that what was coming was true worship, a true crown, a true throne, a true royal robe, and a true kingdom. He was able to To suffer it, but there's something else going on here. Like there's, I'm sure there's parts of what happened that we're not told. Each each element that Mark tells us here is significant. And he tells us that the crown was not just a a crown of sticks chucked on his head, was not just a mock crown. We're told it was a crown of thorns. What Mark is doing in the Gospel writers, what they do when they include this detail is picking up one of the very first prophecies that the Bible ever accounts for us and applies it to Jesus. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 18, as, as as Adam has sinned and is being cursed for his sin, he is told, cursed will be the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now there's lots of things God could have said there. He could have said something about disease. He could have said something about earthquakes. He could have said something about about pebbles in your shoes, they're pretty annoying. He could have said something about splinters. But he says, as he's symbolizing the curse that has now befallen the human race, there's going to be thorns. On the most beautiful set of flowers, you're going to go to smell them and you'll get a thorn in your hand. There's this this curse that is all over the human race which God used the word thorns and thistles to to symbolize. The the curse has befallen the human race and now the king of the human race has come to wear that curse on himself. That that crown of thorns is, 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 is joining together the fallen world and the coming glory. There is is a fallen curse down upon the human race. It kills them. It destroys us. It ruins our lives and it takes us to hell. But there is a kingdom that has been established through the blood of Jesus and they are not separate things. They, they They are not divorced entirely. God did not stop the whole human race and start again, but instead there has been this glorious overlap where the curse has now fallen onto the king. The king wears it upon his head and establishes in his blood through his suffering, the kingdom that will have no end. It was crowned on Jesus' head, that crown of thorns, and was driven deeper, as verse 19 tells us. Each of the, we don't know if all 600 men did it, maybe just the most the most uh, mocking, but, but they took turns in, in walking around him and chanting him, taking his own scepter, his own little mock, mock scepter as a king, and striking him on the head with it, propping him back up again, giving it another crack. And with each hit, those thorns are going deeper and deeper. He's being utterly humiliated and mocked here. He is weak, he is humbled, and he is humiliated. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Thirdly, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 verse 3 that he was despised and rejected by men. This, this is just a thematic recap of everything we've looked at so far. He is being despised and and rejected by every person around him. The whole evening from from his betrayal, he was despised and rejected, betrayed by Judas. He's been despised and rejected by the Jews, by Annas, the high priest, by Caiaphas, the the official high priest, by the whole Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the city. He's been despised and rejected by Pilate. Then, Mark doesn't tell us, but the other Gospels, uh, John does, that he was then sent off to Herod, the other one of the king over the area, and then sent back. He was despised by Herod because he couldn't do him any miracles or he refused to, and he is here being despised and rejected by the soldiers. Isaiah 53 is being fulfilled in the account of what is happening to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. Fourthly, we will see that as... Isaiah 52, verse 15 tells us, Thus shall he sprinkle many nations. Verse 21 tells us that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to to carry his cross. Is Simon of Cyrene was forced by the soldiers to carry the cross for Jesus because at this point, whether he's carrying the full thing or more traditions tell us the, the, the criminals would just be forced to carry the crossbar. they would be strapped to their shoulders and they would carry it. We're told in the other gospels that, that Jesus trips. The, the large weight would have crushed his chest. Now he's got more broken ribs, a, a caved in chest. Breathing is now difficult. It's taken off of him and it's given to a man by force who is walking past. Simon of Cyrene. Now Cyrene is modern-day Libya, so we have an African man here who has, who is a, a Jew. We we know from historical records that there was a there was a synagogue of Jews in Cyrene, uh, modern-day Libya. They, they were very devout. They they were uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, people who would trek to Jerusalem for the uh, uh, for the for the meals for the great festivals, which is why Simon of Cyrene would be in Jerusalem at this point. But we also know from church history that that somebody had taken the gospel back to Cyrene and had planted some of the the first African churches down there. History tells us that it's this Simon of Cyrene who who comes back again for Pentecost. Here's the, the preaching of the gospel. of of this man who he helped walk up the road, walk up to the hill and who he watched crucified. He goes home, the next holiday he comes to Jerusalem and there he sees a bunch of drunk guys yelling in other languages. He realizes they're preaching. This is Pentecost, the spirit has just fallen. Peter stands up and exalts Jesus Christ as one who died and now is alive and risen to whom all of us must repent because you are responsible for his death. Simon would have been cut to the heart. He took the gospel back to Africa. Not only that, but, but uh, Mark actually says here, this strange little uh, uh, parentheses, that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Cool. Who's Alex and who's Rufus? We, we don't know these guys, but, but of course he's saying, it's as if he's saying here, Alex and Rufus, who you guys know? The or- not you, the original audience, the Romans the people he's addressing this, this gospel to, they would have received it and read, hey, this is Alan Rufus' dad. Alex and Rufus were members of the Roman church. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, Paul writing to them says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been also a mother to me as well. By the time Paul goes to write Romans in, in the 60s, Simon had gone back and taken the gospel to Africa, his sons had been raised, uh, had been, had been uh, converted, and and they were living in Rome. And, and probably Simon was had died by this point. Uh, uh, church history tells us, but his sons were prominent members in the Roman Church. And his mother was this servant-hearted lady who Paul the Apostle had reason in his letter, in inspired scripture, to say she's like a mum to me. My mum has cast me off because I'm I'm a Christian now, but she has been a mother to me. The wife of the man who carried Jesus' cross, God was weaving together the reality of bringing all nations into one spiritual nation. Don't you see how many nations are represented in Mark's gospel so far here? We have, we have the, the Hebrew Jews, the, the sons of Abraham, living in Jerusalem and Israel. We have Cyrenian Jews who, who have been uh, proselytized into the, the Hebrew faith. Africans. We have Romans here uh, being, being Pilate. We have Idumean we have, uh, uh, kings like Herod who is also uh, having to do with Jesus who we'll learn later on in Acts. Some members of his household get saved also. We have the Africans here. We also uh, see is, yeah, see that the Romans take it back to them and we see the, the Syrian soldiers who were a part of this cohort. There's just multiple nations at this moment that, is all, that are all literally being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Can't carry his cross next to him and not be sprinkled with some of his blood. You couldn't have whipped him and and beaten him and hit him with rods and not had some of his blood upon you. Jesus was leaving this physical trail of blood across all of the members of all of these different nations as a clue and a sign that one day upon his resurrection and the explosion of the preaching of the gospel, God would bring together into a spiritual nation, the church, under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, many different ethnicities. Just take a look around today. That's what Jesus has done in fulfillment of Isaiah 52. This very act of his dying, of his weakness, of his humility, of his suffering, this is how he sprinkles many nations. This is how he will bring in many nations under his one kingdom. To us, it seems strange. It seems like the distraction, of failure, but this is exactly how Isaiah said It would happen. Doing this, he shall sprinkle many nations. Number five, we see in Isaiah 53, verse 4, the prophecy that the people looking upon him would think this to themselves We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Or, in other words, this man is dying for his own sins and his own crimes. In God's providence, he has brought this man to death because he must deserve it. That was the the idea of everybody watching the account, even though deep down they knew he's he's righteous, he's done nothing wrong, he's not deserving death, but we need him to die. But, But the general population is watching this happen, assuming. I mean, the soldiers are beating this man, assuming that he's just a failed idiot. He's a moron. He tried to take on the Roman Empire. You're an idiot for trying that. You come from backwater Galilee, Nazareth of all places, and you try and collect a following and overturn the Roman Empire's stronghold over Israel. This man deserves everything that is coming to him. His own God has forsaken him. They're mocking him, destroying his body, humiliating him because they, in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, thought that he he was stricken. He was afflicted by God. He's been forsaken because of his own sins, only God, only Jesus, and by the scripture's testimony, now us also, only us through the word of God, but on that day, only God had the right interpretation of what was happening that day. Only Jesus knew what was really happening. Everybody else assumed that he was some kind of failure. They esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And so we see through verses 22 to 25, I'll read it again. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, that's an element of pity they have for this this dumb fool, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take, and it was the third hour when they crucified him, that would be 9am, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews... Here is the idea that they both have this, this intermingled pity for the poor man and also a desire to see him punished. We see the pity come out in the fact that they they, hear they offer him wine to drink before they pin him to the cross and stick the, the pole in the ground and, and lift him up. He is offered this drink of wine mixed with myrrh. Now later on in the day, he's going to be offered wine on a sponge, which he will drink so that he has enough moisture in his mouth to cry out his last few cries. But at this point, The the myrrh wine is actually an anesthetic. It's something that would dull the brain. It would numb the pain because these people go through such hell on those crosses. And out of mercy, the, the, the Roman centurions obviously allowed some of the women around Jesus to offer this to him. But Jesus is not a martyr here. Jesus is not a good guy who got caught in the wrong moment and is now dying against his plans and wants any kind of out that he can have. All of his desperate cries to escape this were expired in the garden. The garden of Gethsemane, the night before, he prayed all that he could pray, Father God, if there is any way that this cup of your wrath can be passed from me, please let me escape it. But if not, your will be done, not mine. Now as he's going through, he is so, he is so set on what he is sent to do. He is so sure that this wrath, this pain, this excruciation is his cup to drink. Next week, we're gonna look at the cup of God's wrath as foretold through the prophets. As he is drinking this cup of wrath, he seeks no anesthetic, no distraction, no numbing. He is here to drink it to its dregs and so he refuses the anesthetic. And then they crucified him in verse 24. And and that's all it says. Three words, they Crucified him. It feels so anticlimactic. Mark's just accounting for us the history, the future, the future preaching of the of the apostles and the epistles and the letters of the New Testament, they will explain and interpret everything that's happening here. But at the moment, all we have is he's just crucified. It's just it, it's just so common. It's just, it's not even its own sentence. And they crucified him and also divided his garments. He just runs on past it because the point is not just what is happening to his body, but but this whole account of what is fulfilling prophecy, but but also it was just, it was so common. That men would be crucified for their crimes was so common. When people were stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, they got crucified. That's what happens. You don't tick off the Romans and get to live a long and peaceful life. But in another sense, though it seems so nonchalant, just a short word, and he keeps on moving, (coughs) though it seems so common because, of course, crucifixion happened to thousands of people. In a deeper sense, this was worse. Physically, Jesus' death was worse because not everybody was scourged so horribly before crucifixion. He dies very quickly. But also he's here suffering for for sins that were not his, and he is suffering something that none of us have ever experienced, the wrath of God. One commentator said, only people in hell know what Jesus is going through at this cross. There were thousands of others who had been crucified, but only those in hell know what he's going through. But even that just doesn't quite cut it. Because those other people who are now in hell, they've known nothing of perfect eternal heaven. They've never been surrounded and worshipped by millions of angels. They've never been in the sinless, glorious brilliance of the presence of God. They're where they deserve. They suffered in life. They sinned against God. They went to hell. Yes, they, like Christ, are suffering the wrath of God, but they don't—they just don't fully get it. They do not have the, the contrast that Jesus now has as he is crucified there on the cross. He is the son of God, the creator of the world, and yet esteemed, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And so they start dividing up his clothes like they did with anybody else. The reality is that people crucified, especially people they wanted to make a mockery of, they would crucify them with no clothes on. This is Jesus, zero clothes on, all of his clothes taken, and now they've just been divided up. These soldiers have, have no estimation of what is really happening here. And yet even in their nonchalant, run-of-the-mill, going through the motions of what we do when you crucify a Jew, you divide up the clothes, they start casting lots, and yet it is in perfect fulfillment of Psalm 22. In verse 13 to 14, uh, sorry, 14 through 18, the psalmist writes, hundreds of years beforehand, prophesying the suffering Messiah. He says, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. That is something that would happen on the cross, a dislocation of many of your joints. My strength is dried up like a broken pot and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. That's Jewish language for Gentiles. Gentiles are encompassing me. A A company of evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. That is, I can see them from the outside. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Is perfect fulfillment of every prophecy. And then Pilate goes and puts above him in this this big uh, placard above the head of Jesus being nailed into the cross. It says, uh, it would have said in full language, uh, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews in uh, Aramaic, in Hebrew, uh, sorry, in Latin and in Greek. So in three languages, it's all up there so that everybody can see it. And it was really an insult to the Jews. Pilate, who hated the Jews, put up in front on this this, this naked, dying man. He put, here's your king. Here's what I think of you. They got insulted. They wanted to take it down. He wouldn't. And yet even there, Pilate is is partaking in this God's sovereign way of prophesying the true reality behind everything. Because by this very act he's not just king of the Jews. Pilate, he's king of you. He's king of Rome. He's king of the universe. Through this he'll be seated, Hebrews 12:2 told us remember, at the right hand of God. Jesus was mocked as the king of the Jews. Again, this royal theme popping up, the suffering and the glory they esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. And lastly, Isaiah fifty three number six in verse twelve he says that he was uh, he was numbered with the transgressors. Look at verse twenty seven through thirty two. He was allocated. He was treated. He was numbered. He died with the other transgressors, the criminals. Here's what verse twenty seven and onward says. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. He was numbered. With the transgressors. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Now they, they were misquoting him. He didn't say that he would do that. He told them that they could kill him, his body, the temple, and he would rise it up in three days. Literally happening right now. They want that prophecy fulfilled? Okay, he'll do it. But he has to die. He says, Come down and save yourself, come down from the cross. Verse 31. Now, the chief priests, the religious guys have thrown off their ties. They've lost all sense of decency. Now, they also are mocking him to one another. They're not even looking at him, they're not even speaking to him. They're just laughing about him in front of him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Just note, they just admitted that he was everything he had been claimed to be. He saved others. Well, he cast demons out of them by the power of God. He raised people from the dead. He he freed people from horrible illnesses and diseases. He saved others like he's a savior. We'll admit it, but he can't save himself. They've just admitted their own guilt by acknowledging that he is a true savior. He is able to save others, but he cannot save himself. But don't you see the equation here? That if in this moment Jesus saves himself, he can save nobody else. In fact, like the, the Father had sent him with this, with this covenant, this obligation, you must go down and drink the cup to its dregs and take every last punishment for all of the my chosen people's sins, and I will, I will leave you no mercy. I will withhold nothing from you because if I withhold it from you, I cannot withhold it from them. Do not save yourself, the Father had promised. I will raise you up. That was the promise of the Father. You must die, I will raise you up. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and yet we are told that the Father raised him on the third day. Do not save yourself, Jesus, for if you save yourself, you cannot save others. Aren't we glad that Jesus did not respond like we respond he didn't react in a show of strength. He didn't puff up his chest, jump down from the cross and smite them all with his angels that were just waiting for a call from him. He submitted. He did not save himself so that he could save us. And all those who passed by wagged their heads. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 7. Laughing at him as if he's an idiotic criminal. All who see me, verse Verse seven of Psalm 22 says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Well, he would. Not today, not the next day, but on Sunday, the Lord God would rescue, deliver, and again visit with glory and exaltation his son, the Messiah, who would be laid in the grave later on today. But as we see all of this, we have to, we have to consider as, as we're watching all of it, and what we can do is we can, we can see it and, and say to God a reversal of what he said to Abraham. I read this in a, in a commentary on the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he was dying, a, a writer said this, that we can, we can remember what God said to Abraham. Remember when Abraham offered his son as he was told to do, go and put him on the altar, kill him, and in faith he he did it, but he didn't have to kill him. And God's angel came in at the last moment and said, stop, don't kill your son, for now the Lord knows that you love him, for you have not withheld your only son. And now we can we can turn this around because in fulfillment of the prophecy, God did provide the lamb. The lamb is his son. And we can say with with, with exaltation and with humility, we can look to heaven and say, God, now I see that you love me, for you have not withheld your only son. What are you supposed to do? When you read the book of Mark like this in conjunction with Isaiah 53, and you can tell that for a 1,000 plus years, 4,000 years going back to Genesis prophecy, 700 years for Isaiah's prophecy, a 1,000 years for David's prophecy, all of this attention that God had put in to prophesy the details of the crucifixion of his son. What are you supposed to do with that? You have the historical account inspired by God. You have the prophecy beforehand inspired by God. Is it just pretty? Is it cool? Is it a nice little literary framework that we should appreciate? Friends, we are driven to a point of decision by this. Look at what God in his love did not do to you. You did not have to walk the way of Jesus. You did not have to go and die the death that Jesus died. Look at at what God did not do to you. But look also at what God is doing for you and has done for you. God has so so punished his own son. Christ had come out of such a, such a love for you that was born from eternity that you can't change. You can't make him love you less. You can't make him love you more. Christ, out of his infinite love, came while we were weak, while we were sinners, and he went through this for us. You have to make a decision. Is that worthy of your trust? Is that worthy of your belief, It's not even a question. It absolutely is, and we're in sin until we believe that. You're commanded, you're compelled, believe in that. Don't try and face God on judgment day dressed in your own sin. Do not try and approach God in your own righteousness or in your own right standing. You need Jesus Christ who went through this for you. He suffered so that he could be exalted and now welcomes you into his coming glory. Believe it. And Christians, do you, do you hold fast to this? Do you remember that it is not your righteousness, not your martyrdom, not your suffering, not your working hard that will make God love you? Put, put him in some kind of debt to you. It is simply the faith that you cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that faith, God pours out his blessings of sanctification. Do you believe it and have you committed to this? And does your life look like he is your Lord? Does your life look like, like you have committed everything to his lordship and his command, for he has been exalted at the right hand of God, having put to shame the humiliation of the cross. Let's pray. (coughs) Father God, thank you. Thank you for killing your son in our place. It is the the scandal of all scandals that we would say things like that, that we would confess that the, the glorious Messiah, the blessed one was cursed, and that the powerful one was made weak, and that the glorious one was so humiliated, that the, the, the exalted one had been so put to shame in front of, in front of men, in front of humans, that, that he just allowed them to make him a, a laughingstock, to put him into the dust and mock him. Father God, we, we thank you for this account of Mark, for in it we see... The, the depths of suffering that Jesus was willing to go through at the hands of hateful men so that we can understand the depths of his love. We've understood that we are guilty sinners because of our, our, our disobedience, our love of the world, our, 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 our fulfilling ourselves in the pleasures of the flesh. We understand we are sinners and here today, we see the cost of that sin and we see the great love with which Jesus has loved us. We thank you for sending your son. Father God, I pray that those in the room to whom the gospel has been head knowledge or to whom Jesus has been a significant historical figure or to whom religion and Christianity is a nice lifestyle to people who are still in their sins but think that of Jesus, that they would be captivated by the vision of glory and suffering put before us today, that they would repent of their low thoughts of Jesus, that they would repent of their petty thoughts of their sin, and realize they need this Jesus in this form of death to save them from the justice of a holy God or they have no hope. Please give to them today faith that will receive him and in him be sprinkled from their sin, be cleansed from their unrighteousness, be brought into his everlasting kingdom. Father God, those of us who know him, who love him, won't you give us the, 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 the submission and the desire and the passion for obedience that the Lord Jesus had? For we are weak and we are wavering, but your spirit can make us fast. We pray all of this, Lord God, in the name of him who bled for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen.